Good morning. My name is Carlos. I'm uh, one of the pastors here at Desert Springs Church. Uh, I am overseeing the young adults right now and the men's ministry, and um, soon we'll be leading out a church plant called Redemption in Rio Rancho. Um, that'll happen, Lord willing, in January. Uh, so I'm at, what we're going to do now is we're going to open up in prayer, and here's what we're going to do a little differently. We're going to open up in about 20 seconds worth of just silent prayer and ask you to pray for yourself, pray for those around you, that God's word would, um, by the power of the Spirit, be illuminated to your hearts and minds, that Jesus would be center this morning. And you would pray for me. I've been a little under the weather the past couple of days, so I'm feeling pretty weak, and that, um, yeah, just that I make it through it. So, um, and that ultimately God is glorified, and his strength is revealed in my weakness. Uh, so let's just pray silently for just a few seconds, and then I will uh, pray and we'll get going. Father God, you're good, you're mighty, you're sovereign. Your grace is lavished on us through the blood of your son, Jesus. We thank you. Thank you for this morning. Uh, Thank you for your word. Uh, Father, I pray that the Holy Spirit would illuminate hearts and minds to your word so that we would leave here more in love with your son, Jesus, more in awe of the grace you've given us, and more um, passionate about sharing this message with others. Father God, I pray that um, I would become less, you'd become more, and that you would be the center this morning. I'd get out of the way, and that through my weakness, you would um, come forth boldly and strongly as you do. We ask these things, I ask these things, in your Son's precious and holy name, by the power of your Spirit. Amen. I'll tell you a couple stories. First about a young man, he's committed to reckless living. Living a life of just licentiousness, going after everything after his heart desires. Sinful. And he's sitting in his yard one day, wondering what life was about. And there he hears, from over the fence, the words, pick up and read. Pick up and read. Taking it as a sign from the Lord, he does. And he flips to this passage in the book of Romans. It says, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual morality and debauchery, not in dissension and jealousy. Rather, clothe yourself with the Lord Jesus Christ and do not think about how to gratify the desires of the sinful nature. That moment, his heart was pierced. He saw the error of his ways. He saw his sin before him. And he saw the Lord Jesus. He was transformed radically. Well, a thousand years later, another young man was wrestling in his heart, wondering how he could possibly be saved by a holy, righteous God. He was more afraid and angry at this God who seemed to demand so much than he was in love with him. He's he's quoted as saying this about him, about his life. He said, if you asked me, did I love God? I would say, love God? Sometimes I hated him. I saw Christ as a terrifying judge who had the sword of judgment above my head and I had no peace. It was reading Romans 1.17 that changed everything for him. He read for in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. 
His life was transformed. He saw forgiveness. He saw the hope that is in Jesus. The first man who was living a licentious life as transformed by simple words of pick up and read and reading the book of Romans was the church father, Augustine, who has influenced the church for 1,500 years with his writings. The other man was a German monk known by the name of Martin Luther who brought reformation to the church. The list can go on and on. The book of Romans has had a profound influence and has been the book many see as when read as the turning point in their faith. I know it was for me as a young Christian. As I read through the book of Romans, God just got bigger and bigger and the grace got more amazing and more amazing but it comes through Jesus Christ. And that's where we land today in our overview as we start to overview some of our this summer overviewing some of the books of the New Testament, we're looking at the book of Romans. Now, just as a preface to this, John Piper, a pastor in Minneapolis, took five years to preach through this book. I will try to give an overview in 45 minutes. (laughs) So this will be very 30,000-foot level hearing. But let me encourage you, if you have not already in your life, and take a semester, take a, a year to go through this whole forest, this mighty forest that is the book of Romans. So if you want to turn, turn to the, to the book of Romans chapter 1. Let me give you some context real quick about this book. The author is Paul. Paul is an apostle of the Lord. And he is former persecutor of the church. We talked about this past couple of weeks in the book of Acts. Hated the church, hated Christians, and then was converted on the way to Damascus as he was going to go persecute more Christians. And Jesus saves him. Now he's a strong leader. This is probably written in the mid-50s A.D. Interesting thing is that Paul has never met these people in Rome. He didn't plant this church. He's never even visited this church. He wants to go. He expresses his interest to go. But he has yet to actually go to this church in Rome. This church was located in Rome. It was a center of culture. Rome was a center of culture. It was a center of civilization. Rome was it. Rome was the New York City of the day. If you want to go and make it big, if you want to go and find power and wealth, you go to Rome. Rome was the center of everything. And with that, it was a melting pot of culture. Culture from all over the world would come to Rome. Church is no different. It's filled with diversity. Predominantly Gentiles, but also former Jews. And with this diversity, there comes tension. There comes tension as, who is, how do you be saved? What's the law? And how does this work? Who's, who's more stable? Who's more holy? Who's more righteous? Who needs Jesus more? So Paul's writing them this beautiful letter to answer some of these. And the answer is simply the gospel. The answer is look to Jesus. He flushes that out early on in Romans 1, 16 to 17. He says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in the righteousness of God is revealed, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. If you want a theme for this book, it can be summed up like this. The amazing and transforming grace of God towards sinners. 
What Paul will now do is, from those two verses, he's now going to spend the rest of the letter unraveling, really unwrapping the beauty, the bigness of the gospel that binds this church, that holds this church, that holds this church as well. So the first point he makes to these Christians in Rome is that no one seeks after God. See, Paul lays out the problem as all-encompassing one, and the problem is sin. Sin is the biggest problem, because sin is ultimately against God. Sin is the creation going after the, the creator and saying, I want to do things my way. I am God. I will do things the way I see fit. It is rebellion. It is law-breaking. It is treason. And what Paul wants to get across in the opening of Romans in the first few chapters is that we are all sinners. It doesn't matter your background. It doesn't matter how you were raised. It doesn't not matter how much you know about the Word of God. You are a sinner. You are a rebel at heart. And you do not seek God at heart. He turns first to the Gentiles. They turn from God. They know he exists. But it's like, it's like holding a beach ball down. They suppress the truth about God and deny him. Paul says, for what can be known about God is plain to them, to the Gentiles, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. They have turned from God even though they know he exists. Instead, they chase after created things. They chase after idols. They worship the way they want. They worship the things they desire. They are just created things. They totally deny and throw out the creator. He says, claiming to be wise, they became fools and to exchange their glory to the immortal God for images resembling the mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Idols are simply anything not God that we worship. Any created things, which is everything but, but God that we follow, that we find our identity in, that we give all of our treasures to, all of our passions, all of our joy to, that's an idol. Paul's saying that they've exchanged God for these idols. And in fact, God gives them up to chase after the idols. What's interesting in chapter 1 is judgment here is in fact God allowing them to go full board after these idols. God allowing people to chase sexuality. God allowing people to chase money. God allowing people to chase power and anything else they love more than God. God allowing that is not just going to bring about judgment. It is judgment against them by God. See, the scariest place to be, friends, is to be totally and absolutely comfortable in your sin. To have no conviction, no remorse, to be absolutely and totally comfortable is the most dangerous place to be. As this letter is being read, as this first part is being read, you can almost hear those that know the law, those that know the word, as as Paul is talking about the Gentiles, kind of looking, going, preach it, Paul. Amen. I told you. I'm glad you're hearing this. I'm glad you're here right now. You needed to hear this. 
You Gentiles need, yeah, see, Paul's, Paul's bringing the thunder and it's, I'm glad this is why I came. I wanted, I wanted you to hear it. Maybe you're in here right now going, I'm glad, I'm glad so-and-so is hearing this right now. And Paul takes chapter 2 to say, not so fast. Verse 1, he says, therefore, you have no excuse, O man. Every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. Paul says, you know what's right and wrong. You're judging them because they don't know, but you know. You know the law. And yet you still chase after idols. You still run away from God. And you judge them. Slow down. You are running just as quick after the idols of your heart. Because it's easy in chapter 1 to look and go, these are the really bad sins. It's easy to go, look at the world today. They look at the, all this list. And at the same time, even for us, even if you were raised in the church and you've known the Bible, you've read the Bible every day since you were one year old, you don't see the respectable idols that you have in your life. Maybe it's religion. Maybe it's the Bible. Maybe it's your morals that you chase after instead of chasing after God. That you find your hope and your identity instead of finding your hope and identity in God. It's the same sin. It's the same heart issue. That's what Paul is getting at. He's saying just because they're doing it, you're doing the same thing. It might be just in a different form, but you're still doing it. Paul is saying that our hearts are just as bad. All hearts are just as bad. That we at the core are idolaters. We at our core being our sinners. We rebel against God. He ends this overview of the totality of sin with this. In chapter 3, he says, What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin as it is written. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. The way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Here's what Paul's doing in the first two and a half chapters. He's taking both groups in this church and saying, you are both in trouble. On your own, the wrath of God justly is against you because you have rebelled against the king. You have sinned against God and the sin against an infinite God deserves an infinite punishment. It says this Sin, not just that we sometimes sin, but that there is sin in us, that we are sinners. This is humanity's biggest problem. And friends, this is your biggest problem, my biggest problem. Do we see it? Do we get that? 
We can have a list of problems that we come in here with and hoping, well, I hope Jesus solves my marriage problems. I hope Jesus solves the fact that my kids are rebelling problems. I hope Jesus solves the financial problems I'm going through right now. Your biggest problem, my biggest problem, Paul tells us, the word tells us, is that we have rebelled against God. And we are facing judgment, just judgment for our sins. We will pay a penalty on our own for our sins against a holy God. Paul is trying to get that through their heads as they are debating who's more saved. He's like, you're both unsavable. There is nothing about you attractive. You have gone your own way. And as we are on this dark path, Paul, inspired by the scriptures, inspired by the Spirit, gives us the greatest word of hope in scripture, one of the greatest words of hope in scripture. But, it's taking us down this passing. You are going after your own way. You are going after your way. The wrath is coming and it is coming. It is just and it is right by God to do it. But, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. It brings to point two is God's response to the fact that no one seeks after God. It's God's response of grace and mercy. See, one of the biggest themes sometimes in the world today is we talk about the human spirit. I saw this a couple weeks ago during the women's game against Brazil. It wasn't mentioned last week as much against Japan. But last, when they won, it was like, well, the human spirit, we just overcome. American spirit, it's just there. We're, that's just how we go. We're just, and what Paul's saying is, no, you know what the biggest problem is? The human spirit. It's set against God. His aim now in the rest of the book is to show how the unstoppable grace and love of God in Christ Jesus <coughs> is given to us hopeless, running on our own sinners. He says later, for there is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's just what he got done saying. And are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put, put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. That sums up what God has done for us in so many ways. John's Piper says this about what it means to be justified. He says, being justified means being reckoned righteous with God's righteousness imputed to us or counted as ours. We are not merely forgiven and left with no standing before God. God not only only sets aside our sin, but he also counts us as righteous and puts us in a right standing with himself. He gives us his own righteousness. And Paul's already shown that we're sinners, that we don't deserve forgiveness. And he says, this grace, this comes as a gift from God. You who boast because you know the law, don't boast because what you are given is a gift. You who are far off suppressing the truth of God, don't boast like you found some secret now and your life is different. It is a gift from God. And the gift comes in Jesus Christ, in God himself. The justification comes 
being made right before God comes from Christ, from his blood, that Jesus, God himself, came down into humanity, lived the perfect life we won't and we can't live, and went to the cross and spilled his blood as a sacrifice, an innocent sacrifice, so that the wrath that was reserved, the wrath that we deserve, the wrath that we have built up against us because of our sin was put on Jesus at the cross. Three days later, Jesus rose and gives us the life perfectly that he lived, the life that he earned, his righteousness he earned, he gives to us. Who by faith through, who by grace through faith trust in that message. We live life now, and God looks on us, Christian, and sees the work of Jesus. He sees Jesus. We just went over what he should, what, 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 what there really is. But by faith, by God's grace, by his love, Jesus' righteousness is put on us. This is the heart of the amazing grace we just sang about. This is the heart about what we just sang about past five songs this morning. Guys, if we don't see the depths of this, if we're not left feeling the absolute need for this, we will not understand the rest of the book and we will not understand why we do what we do, why we sing how we sing. God himself has come and gives us a new heart, gives us the faith to believe, and gives us his son as a sacrifice. Paul, later in 2 Corinthians, says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And Paul's recap of this in chapter 5 of Romans. It's one of my favorite sections of scripture. He says, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more Now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life? More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. We were sinners. We were weak. We were enemies. The gospel is not a message of God helps those who help themselves. That was Benjamin Franklin who said that. God's is a message is God saves those who have ran away from him, who have ran against him. God saves those who are his enemies by his very own life. That is the love of God. That is why we gather and sing songs. That is why we are to remember at Lord's Supper we who were enemies, we who were weak, we who were sinners, Christ died for. 
should be a humbling effect for us. And as we trust in this truth, we are saved by his life, Christ's life, death, and resurrection. And trusting in this truth is an act of trust. It's a transforming trust. Because God's grace through faith gives us an ultimate new identity. That's our third point, is our new identity in Christ. See, Paul, now after preaching about grace given to God for us, the answer is kind of rhetorical, but somewhat real question is, well, what's the incentive for not sinning then? Some people are probably going, well, no, law, well, law, we just didn't sin. Sinning was bad, but now everything's forgiven, and if God looks at us, he looks at Jesus, we kind of live our own lives, right? That's how it goes. We get, hey, thanks for forgiveness. I'm going to go back and live how I want to live now. I got that, but I got that as my insurance. Here's what Paul says. What then shall we say? Are we to continue to in sin that grace might abound? This is in chapter 6. By no means. How can we who die to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized in Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. In order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. In the next six, seven, eight, next three chapters, Paul's really going to start to outline of what this looks like, what this new identity in Christ is. It's not just forgiveness and you go your own way. It's you're forgiven. You're now Christ. You are now finding your identity, your hope in Jesus Christ. And what's that look like? The first thing he says is it's just a call now to be who you are. See, the call to live in Christ, the call to live as a Christian life, is not a call to try to be something ideal. It's be who you are in Christ. Be a son of God. Be a daughter of the living God. You are in his kingdom now. You're in the kingdom of the beloved son. Just be who you are, the son of God. Paul contrasts this with either how we are slaves to sin following and chasing the idols of our hearts? Or we are now slaves to God, living to please Him? See, something owns our passions and desires. And when we trust in Christ, and we're given a new heart, the passions and desires begin to change. Our passions and desires begin to be for Christ, for God, for His glory, to make Him known, to love as He's loved. That's who we are now. That's who we are as children of God. We will serve one or the other. We will serve either sin or grace. We will worship ourselves. We will worship the idols or we will worship God. There is no in-between. There's no, we're doing one or the other every moment. But then he comes back to his second, the second point of finding our identity in Christ is you never move past this gospel. You never move past your need for Jesus. Because I can, I, just even as I was saying that, just as I was studying it, I was reading that, as I was sure some here were thinking it, okay, be who I am, but I sin a lot, Los. I do a lot of stuff bad. You tell me to be, just be who you are. Well, maybe who I am is a sinner. Maybe who I am is just really messy, really broken. And you're telling me just be who I am. Paul gets that. 
He gets that it's a process. And that being who we are means constantly, continually returning to the message that saves us. Returning to Jesus. Chapter 7, he says, I, Paul, this is Paul saying this about his life. I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. That's in, in his former self, in his sin, in his former way of life. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. Paul's saying, I, I know what I want to do. I know I want to be who I am in Christ. I want to do this, but I don't do it. And the stuff I really don't want to do, I end up doing And then he cries out, but he cries out with hope. He says, I see my members, another law waging war against the law of my mind, making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And he says, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, with my flesh, I serve the law of sin. And then chapter 8, verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Whole we'll talk about new identity is always returning to the truths of the gospel, friends. We must preach this daily to ourselves because we are in process. We are still sinners. We are still messy. We are still broken. We still do the things we really don't want to do. We still go back to our former thinking, our former slave master of sin, and we still go back there. And what Paul is doing there is he's saying, i got to keep reminding myself of Christ. i got to keep reminding myself there is therefore now no condemnation in Christ. There is hope. There is forgiveness. It is finished. And out of that stance, as we continually preach that to ourselves daily, daily, our new identity will become formed more and more and more out of a place of understanding grace and forgiveness. It's not a mantra. You don't just get up. It's not like Dorothy and Wizard of Oz where you're just like clicking your shoes. No place like, oh, no, no. It is coming to a place of seeing your sin that still dwells, the flesh that still is there, raging war against God. And reminding yourself that you need the gospel as much today as you did that first time you heard it and believed. You will need it as much tomorrow as you do today. You will need it as much 50 years from now as you will today. You need to keep coming back to this truth, back to this good news, back to this forgiveness of who is Jesus and how there is no condemnation for those who are in him. That is what we must come to, return to daily. And the third part of our identity is we are to live by the power and in the Spirit. Chapter 8 shows how Paul's new identity is about living life in the Spirit. 
Holy Spirit who dwells within us, who has given to us upon conversion, who gave us a new heart, gives us the new desires to do the things of God, who wages war against our flesh, our flesh that is our desires for, to sin, our desires for our idols, our desires to go our own way. The Spirit is against those things. The Spirit is for the things of God. The Spirit is now given to us. The Spirit is the only way we accomplish anything in our lives towards God. The Spirit is the one who is our guarantee that we are, in fact, adopted into God's family. In verse 14, he says, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him, in order that we may be glorified with him. See, our new identity is not one as a slave to sin, but as an adopted son, daughter of God. We are loved by God. He says, even as suffering comes, these trials come, we are kept by God the Father, through the working of God the Spirit, by the blood of God, Jesus Christ. God keeps us. Because Romans is not about trying hard. If you haven't gotten that yet. Romans is about our hopelessness apart from God. If you were coming in here and hoping, oh, I wanted to hear a really message that just made me feel really good about myself, sorry. But I'm not sorry because Romans makes you feel really good about the grace and wonder of our God. Because you will fail yourself. But he will not. He will not fail you. We are to see from start to finish that salvation comes from the Lord. Paul says at the, towards the end of 8, he says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Friends, there is hope in this joy that even in our messiness, even in doing the things we don't want to do, even the things we regret doing, even no matter where you came in this morning, what frame of mind, there is joy in this. By the work of the Spirit, it will be completed. Piper says this, John Piper says, If you are justified, you will be glorified. You will reach the glory of the age to come and live forever with God in joy and holiness. Why is this so true? It is true because the effect of the death of God's Son is objective and real and definite and invincible for God's people. What it achieves, it achieves forever. The effect of the blood of Christ is not fickle. Now saving and now losing, now saving and now losing. It is sure. And that brings to the fourth point Paul brings in this book of Romans. Salvation is of the Lord. Chapters 9 through 11 show Paul yearning for his kinsmen, he calls them. The Jewish people who have rejected, not, not all, but many who have rejected 
Christ is the Messiah. Christ is God. Christ is the King of Kings. And he mourns. This is more than just a theological section for debate. For Paul, this is personal. But through it all, as Paul prays, through it all, he stands firm in trusting God's sovereign actions. Trusting that God is wise. Trusting that the creator can do what he wants with his creation. And it is right. Paul comes to a place at the end of chapter 11 where the finite, where the created, where us, messy created people, must always come when thinking about the infinite. When we think about our sovereign God, that our God is in control of all things, that nothing is outside of his control We must come to this place continually. At the end of chapter 11, he breaks out in worship. He says, The depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord, who has been his counselor, who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid for from him and through him, And to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Paul's first 11 chapters in so many ways are the, to the Roman churches, the who you were and now who you are in Christ. Now Paul comes to how this affects the day-to-day living For Paul, see, for Paul, the gospel was not just a theory. It was about transformation. And that brings us to the fifth and final point is grace transforms how we live. He opens verse 12 saying, I appeal to you, therefore, because of all that I just said, I appeal to you because of everything I just went through. That you were sinners, you were rebels against God, and God has saved you by his Son. I appeal to you because of those things, brothers, by those mercies of God, to present your bodies as living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. See, life transformation is always what we do in light of God's grace in our lives. Paul's saying, in light of the mercies of God, you're going to live different. In light of the gospel, you will be changed. In light of the grace of God we have just talked about, just reeled off to you about, you are going to live a different way. He goes on, the rest of the book, really unraveling what this newness of mind looks like. It affects how we live in the body of Christ. How we do, we call this the one another's. How we care for each other. How we serve one another. How we are to build each other up constantly. How we're to use our gifts that our king has given us to build up the body. Not to build ourselves up, but to build each other up. How we we are to know each other and rejoice with one another. How we are to mourn with one another. And how, even with our enemies, we are to love and serve them. 
as we have been loved and served by God, who, remember, we were an enemy to, and he died for us. He saved us. He loved us. In that way, we are to love and serve our enemies, those who hate this message, those who hate who we are because we are in Christ. We are to love and serve them. We are to be good, law-abiding citizens who pay our taxes. To see the government is put in place by God and we are called to obey them. We are also called to be, for those who are more mature in faith and who understand their liberties, they should not flaunt or confuse new believers. They should not flaunt things that others don't understand yet. Instead, you should be patient and humble and put their love of Christ, their Christian walk, ahead of your freedoms. All we do, the intention is to build up others. Remember, this was a church that was somewhat divided because of all the diversity in it. And Paul's total end is build each other up. Love one another. Serve one another. By the mercies that you both groups need, love one another. Care for one another. No matter what your background is, if this is your first time in church, if this is your 150th time in church, you are to love and build each other up continually because you are Christ. Because the only thing that saves you is the cross. You are on equal footing before God as sinners and rebels, and yet he loves and saves both of you. Both groups. Love and build each other up. And in chapter 15 and verse 5, I think he lays out his hope for these groups in this church. He says, May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Then finally, Paul, the pastor, lays out his heart to come and see them. But he tells them why he was not there. He wasn't there because he was busy telling others about Jesus. He has not made it to Rome because he's been busy planting churches throughout the world where people have not heard the name Jesus. He wanted more and more people to hear this message. Paul lays out something that we are to imitate that our passion is not just to keep this personal faith. We say it's a personal relationship with Jesus. It is to be anything but personal in so many ways. If this is true, what we just went through, if this is true that we, all people, are rebels against God, and either Jesus pays for their, pays the punishment or they pay the punishment, that hope, joy, and what we are searching for is only found in Christ ultimately. And that God is good and sovereign and just, but he is, and he is loving and he is caring and he is pursuing. Friends, we need to share this message. We need to love others with this message. This is the greatest love we can give others is the sharing of this message. And Paul is saying, this is why I'm here. This is why I want to come through. I'm just going to come through and say hi. Maybe you guys will support me a little bit. And then I'm on my way to Spain because I want to plant more churches so more people hear about Jesus. He said, this message is everything for us. 
This message is what binds you and keeps you and holds you as a church. And this is the message that must go out so it binds, keeps, and holds others as other churches are built throughout the world. See, Romans is about the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's about sinful humanity being redeemed. It's about this humanity being given a new identity as adopted sons and daughters. And how the gospel transforms our lives and makes us messengers of the very message we cling to daily. Let me say this. If you're in here today and you're just like, I got invited and that was a lot you just threw at me. We'd love to talk to you afterwards. We'd love to pray with you. We'd love to just talk about this message that we believe is true and is the greatest and most important message you will ever hear in your life. We believe your greatest urgent need is the need for a Savior. The need for Jesus. We'd love to talk. We'd love to pray. Maybe if you're in here, and this is like, you've been here for years. But you've been trusting in being here for years instead of Jesus. If you stopped mourning over your sin and started relying on your morals, I want to pray with you too. Because it all comes back to you. Jesus, it all comes back to our need for Christ. He's the message of Romans. If you want to sum it up in one word, it's Jesus. He's the message of the Christian life. He's the hope of the Christmas life. Jesus is all we have. But Jesus is all we will ever, ever 